0: Good morning, everybody. This is chapter one from the Diamond Sutra. Thus I have heard, once the Bhagavan was dwelling near Shravasti in the Jetta forest, together with the full assembly of bhikkhus and a great many fearless bodhisattvas. One day before noon, the Bhagavan, the Buddha, put on his patch robe and picked up his bowl and entered the capital of Shravasti for offerings. After begging for food in the city and eating his meal of rice, he returned from the daily rounds in the afternoon, put on his robe and bowl away, washed his feet and sat down on the appointed seat. After crossing his legs and adjusting his body, He turned the attention and awareness to what was before him. A number of bhikkhus then came up where the Bhagavan was sitting. After touching their heads to his feet, they walked around and, and stood to the right. So this morning, we are initiating a series of discussions that will explore in depth a number of issues related to the current state of social injustice and discrimination. And how do we, Zen practitioners, engage in it in ways that may bring some much-needed healing to these ancient wounds that we inflict on each other? So the first step in such an exploration has to begin by asking, what is it? What is our social responsibility as followers of the Buddha Dharma? And in a recent email I mentioned that as practitioners our commitment is to realize the fundamental point and actualize it for the sake of all creation which means our practice is devoted to intimately experience a deep sense of equanimity and equality, and then to expand this sense of unity in ever-growing ripples within our communities so it can heal harmful consequences of our blindness and our ignorance. Now, it may sound easy to say, and it makes you sound like a good idea, but it takes a great deal of determination to realize it, and then to bring such an intention to fruition, which is what we talked about a few weeks ago. In terms of practice, this important issue revolves around the connection between our daily Zazen and our everyday life. And the Diamond Sutra does an incredible job illuminating the seamlessness between these two aspects that are essentially non-dual, as we chant, like the foot before and the foot behind in walking. Try to use only one. Hop around. Won't be very useful. You won't get very far. So, the first chapter of the Diamond Sutra describes the Buddha going to town for his traditional begging grounds, coming back to his dwelling place, eating his meal, and then washing his feet. Then it says that he settled down on his cushion and turned his awareness to what was before him. And This is not much different than what we do on a daily basis. We go to work. We eat our meals. We take care of the daily chores. And at some point throughout the day, we sit on the cushion, correct our posture, And turn our attention to that which was before us. And in the commentary, Sufa says, The Buddha puts on his robes and takes takes up his bowl to uphold the precepts of morality. He washes his feet and takes his seat to enter meditation. Thus does morality gives birth to meditation and meditation to wisdom. Also, By entering the city with his robes and bowl, he goes from the noumenal, which is objects or events as they appear in themselves, independent of perception by the senses. So he goes from the noumenal into the phenomenal. By washing his feet and taking his seat, he goes from the phenomenal back into the noumenal. It is only by remaining unattached to the noumenal, as well as the phenomenal, that undifferentiated Prajna wisdom can be realized. It is only by using both feet, both legs to walk, then that walking becomes possible. As we all know, the heart of our practice is daily Zazen. But daily Zazen was never meant to be an escape from our daily experiences of Ordinary life with all its challenges, pain, disappointments. It is also not meant to be a way to bypass the consequences of our individual and collective karma. So during Zazen, our task is to turn our attention to and connect with the numinal, the absolute, or the background. And when Zazen ends, our task is to turn our attention back to the phenomenal, back to the relative to the foreground and by doing this consistently going back and forth consistently with great resolve over time the dividing line between the relative and the absolute becomes faint and undifferentiated wisdom becomes available and begins to function more freely in our lives that's textbook stuff right But that's really what we are meant to be doing. Then we naturally, if we do it correctly, consistently, wholeheartedly, we naturally gravitate from the unwholesome to the wholesome. From causing harm to doing good. So, Encountering and embodying undifferentiated wisdom or going through an experience of realization doesn't mean that the mess of our lives becomes less messy or that our actions are somehow guaranteed to create positive changes in our society within a certain amount of time. In fact, we may not live to see an end to social injustice and discrimination in our lifetime, but that should not bother us or deter us from opening our hearts to the suffering of our collective karma, and it should not hold us back from devoting ourselves to the well-being of others and that includes everybody, regardless of what we think about them. So while encountering and embodying undifferentiated wisdom doesn't give us a magic wand, it does shed light on our ability to maintain single-minded determination and to get up again and again and again and again, no matter how many times we fell down, no matter how many times we thought we did what needed to be done. So, we maintain single minded determination as we work with our harmful propensities individually and collectively. As Master Shishuang once said, we just impartially sit in the mud, which means we bring impartiality to the mess we create. There are two stories, there are many stories in Buddhism, obviously, there are two stories that uh, I'd like to bring up today that I think uh, do a good job shedding light on what we need to feel or see. The first one, once a bird flew over a forest and she saw a great forest fire, realizing all her buddies are down there and may die, she flew to the nearest lake, picked up some water in the beak, flew over, dumped it over the forest, Slew back to the lake again and again and again until she dropped down and died. The second story. So there were a bunch of people, very hungry, many people, very hungry, looking for food. And then they came to a place where there were huge banquets with tons of great food, fresh, great food. And they all sat down ready to eat. But there was one condition. In front of them, there were three 3 foot long chopsticks. They had to use those chopsticks in order to eat. For a while, they didn't know what to do. Then they realized, if I pick up that food and I feed that person in front of me, then that person may do the same. So, we pick up food. We feed someone else. And then that someone else feeds us. Without looking across the table and asking is this person worth it, should I do that? Feeding others is feeding ourselves, caring for others is caring for ourselves. So the Zazen essentially is a great unifier, kind of like food. It's what we need, it's what we can share with each other. It's what goes beyond opinions, thoughts, appearances. It's a wonderful unifier, the same as our chanting. We all chant together. Our individual voices are lost into one collective voice. We all chip in. We all bring something to chanting. And the voice that we hear, the voice that we create, cannot be unless each one of us brings our voice into it, brings our lives into it. It's the same with Zazen. We dive into our Zazen on a daily basis. We sit together. We don't talk. We don't express opinions. We don't move. We don't allow those opinions to move us. What do we do? Does it work? And if we do realize some sense of unity, what do we do with that? Do we leave it behind on a cushion? What is our responsibility? It's very easy to find solace in our practice and disconnect and do with it what it was not meant to be used for. It's not an escape, it's the other way around. It's a way to realize what is much needed and to use that to bring it to every moment of our lives regardless of what it is, regardless of what we think about it. So now that we spend some time sitting within the noumenal this morning and we turned our attention and awareness to the background, we are now returning to the phenomenal and we direct our attention to the foreground and we need to do our best to examine this those very important questions about our conventional reality from an experience of or some experiential sense of unity otherwise we are going to create what we want to eradicate or want to find a way to solve or resolve. So I emailed a few questions and I want to go over that as we open up this discussion. What are the root causes of discrimination and hatred? Why is there fear of diversity and differences? Are we aware of our own biases? What is our responsibility as Zen practitioners at times like this? And what is the role of a Sangha? What is radical acceptance? And I want to, before we do it, I want to add one more thing. The three poisons, as we all know, are greed, anger, and ignorance. And the three hidden treasures are, guess what? Greed, anger, and ignorance. Those are not to be rejected. Those are to be embraced, looked at, examined, and work with, and transmute. Are we doing that? Or are we putting a fence around our practice, finding some kind of solace and quietude from the mess of this world? So I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, We have some time to discuss that. Uh, When you're ready to speak, please unmute and go for it. Anyone? Okay. So, how about Raison? We can't hear you, Raison. Okay.
1: Good morning, everyone. And, um, in, um I was particularly struck by, well, both articles discuss the um, individual orientation that it's very easy to um, fall into when we do our practice. Uh, When Chenru was giving his introduction today, I was thinking about face masks and the virus and how in the United States, it took us so long to think that Masks are for other people. Uh, We were so hung up on whether the mask protected me. Um, And uh, it seems that our default, maybe this is true in every country, but certainly in our country is to go towards what's in it for me and um, that it's more competitive. It's harder for us to see that what's in it for me is also my relationship to other people and how that relationship um, builds me more than the competition might do. Um, So that um, how to make our sitting um, have that mutuality that we um, are stronger as a group. I mean, we experience this when we actually can sit together, um, that our sitting is stronger, um, but that there's so much Um, both in certain strains of Buddhism and certainly in our culture uh, that keeps pushing us towards um, the individual accomplishment and oftentimes individual accomplishment at the cost of other people's accomplishment, the competitive aspect. Um, So that um, this seems to give us another context in which um, we can see our connections and use those connections. As John as said, uh, the three poisons become the three hidden treasures. Uh, we can use those um, forces, which sometimes um, can be very destructive towards us. Uh, if we work with other people, those forces can become very constructive. Um,
0: thank you. Thank you, Raison. Who's next?
2: Don't be shy.
0: We all have a lot to say about uh, discrimination. I can talk. Yes, you can talk. Yeah. <laughs> we can listen. Um,
3: while there's a lot of raw material to work with here, I um, kind of just wanted to go off of whatever was grabbing me in the moment rather than use this as a springboard to talk about literally all the things. <laughs> but the one thing that struck me in particular was the discussion of are we aware of our delusions, are we aware of our blind spots and what that kind of entails. And something I've been witnessing a lot, particularly is people engaging in somewhat performative behaviors to signify that they've done the hard work uh, of recognizing the influence of race within socioeconomic realities and, and political realities and how much of it is actually in people's blind spots and showing that they're reading the right books and what have you. And I think back to reading uh, being upright and his discussion about enlightenment and that in clarity and serenity and peacefulness of how we kind of all for better or for worse, come to this practice looking for peaceful, looking for silence and we ignore how much of a struggle it is to get to that point. And that if you engage in a sort of spiritual bypassing, you're not you're not paying the you're not paying the price for admission. And I, I hesitate feeling that sometimes because it falls under that uh, no true Scotsman category a little bit. But at the same time, I think there's something real here because I see this particularly among white people of utilizing awakening to these realities as a, as a whip to hit themselves with constantly as a, as a sin for which to not a, a you, know, you know, perpetual payment for for the sin of, of not knowing. And I think most, you know, some people are good intentions. Some people are a product of their environments, both in incredibly negative ways and in incredibly kind of pernicious ways of you know not even realizing that you grew up in a neighborhood that was 98% white people in a slightly middle class affluent area that you didn't even know this was happening and um i think the work going forward is not to engage in prostrations but to engage in what you discussed of of radical acceptance uh, reading um a book by by uh reverend uh, kyoto uh, Williams, who's a Zen practitioner in Brooklyn, uh, about being black, she mentions some of that first encounters of that of when she finally found her sangha, of you know very much there was this kind of connectedness, but then there would be a race issue that would crop up, and she realized suddenly that nobody had the experience that she has had as a as a you know black queer. Um, Uh, woman that how could they open up and accept that what would that look like could they even hear what they had to say and um a lot of necessary work was done (laughs) to 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 educate but also expand compassion and what does that look like and being mindful of those things and uh, getting back to the original point i just think uh that work, that journey to enlightenment, it's not something we hold. It's something that we get glimpses of. Uh, I, I recall one of the first book studies we did of, uh, I think it was the Vimalakirti Sutra, that, that I did with the sangha of the moment when Buddha puts his toe on the ground and flowers spring forth, and you just get a glimpse of, of the Buddha lands there. And I I think a lot of that is that, and that this is continued work, and to not beat yourself up for being late to the party, or beat others up for not realizing what is, you know, plainly obvious, it's just be here for the work. And that's kind of all I need to say on that, I guess.
0: Thank you, Mukhan. Just one note about that. We do at some point in our practice, we have to be willing to say goodbye to our idea of realization. We are holding on to an idea of realization which becomes the barrier from actually realizing. So we have to be willing to say goodbye to what we think awakening means. And then we actually have a chance of realizing. Realization includes everybody and this is something that it's it's tough to digest. It really is difficult for us to digest. I want to realize but I got some stuff here that I want to take along for the journey. We have to be willing to say goodbye and really say goodbye to, who, to what we think it is, to who we think we are, in order to understand unity, in order to transcend the fear of differentiation. So thank you. Uh, I think Justin wanted to talk.
4: Um, yeah, kind of going off of um, what the, the two people were saying, I mean, uh, just reading the two articles, because it definitely, you can tell from the contemporary um, aspect, I'm obviously um, generally very new to this practice, but um, it is, um, I liked how they really talked about taking that um, historic aspect, but also kind of letting them go and not letting that be um, how you perceive it moving forward, because obviously with the way that was um, kind of, utilizing the, the way that sheltered aspect um, and then the way they were utilizing that as kind of like the way this nationalistic attitude of um, having that sheltered action and then being able to move forward and um, kind of letting that pave the way, um, I guess the way the practice can also um, shift. And kind of, obviously this is what this group is doing and, um, and, and, I think I really appreciated that aspect that um utilizing the historical and that more contemporary aspect is um, generating this discomfort um just because of that um I believe they called it the i don 't know um in the articles which is which is definitely um, something that we're seeing a lot more, especially people um our age of that sense of being woke. Um, And I think this community is um, kind of utilizing that wokeness as a way to um, kind of approach it in a more different way than what um, most people are seeing. Thank
0: Thank you, you. Justin. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Good to see you. Thank you.
5: you.
0: Yeah, of course. Joan.
6: Hi, everyone. I'm going to take a risk and jump in and say something. (laughs) um we were also invited to watch the movie i am not your negro by james baldwin and james baldwin concluded the film by asking the question that white people uh ought to ask themselves why uh, they created the negro and um i also very recently finished reading bernie glassman's book on instructions to the cook And something in that book type, I made a connection for myself in the two. And in the book, Bernie says that whenever um, something is created, that a boundary is also created. So that to me helped to answer one facet of what James Baldwin is asking us to do. So why are we creating a boundary? And um, I think that that is very worthy of close examination is the boundary to express oppression to exploit to demonstrate one's superiority as an outlet for one's aggression so um those are the things that i'm thinking about and um related to that in zen practice we are encouraged to watch everything arise and aggression is one of them So certainly, um, as a people, we fall very short in um, studying our aggression rather than unleashing it, and thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, John. It's a very good point, right? Um, What what are we doing on the cushion, right? We're not escaping our, we try. We may try to escape our own uh, harmful propensities, but they show up, right? The strong emotions do show up. Thoughts that we actually may surprise us that we have show up. Suppressing them doesn't, suppressing anything doesn't work, right? So if we, learn to, if we learn to embrace all of it, we are teaching ourselves to be all embracing. If we suppress and reject, we are teaching ourselves to suppress and reject, to push away. So what we do on the cushion actually is very important, how we practice. It's not just get on the cushion, keep your mouth shut and wait for the bell. We are, we are meant to do something with our practice. Right. So we, if, we, if we sit there for 30 minutes and reject, we are getting better at rejecting. If we sit there for 30 minutes and we work on embracing everything, we are getting better at embracing everything. It's as simple as that. Whatever we do on a regular basis, we are going to get good at. So we have to ask our, th- that question. What are we doing with our practice? What, what am I doing with, my, with discomforts that show up? thank you
5: I would like to say something
0: yeah, who's that? Mioho yes <laughs>
5: <laughs> hello everyone um, the first thing when it comes to this topic for me it's a lot of fear because people, I mean I, I will just speak for myself but you're afraid to say the wrong thing you're afraid to people get offended you're afraid to be offended by others, you know, like kind of open that forum. So by me saying something and kind of expressing where I'm at in terms of my consciousness, then others judge me and stuff like that. But I know that that comes from my own judgment. So I am female, I am Latina. So I've been through discrimination, but I come from my country where I am white in my country. So then I also discriminate others because I was taught to do that. Um, my mom was like a dark skin, darker than my dad's family. And therefore she was always rejected. Um, when we were born, I guess, we were lucky to be light skin like my dad. So, or maybe just because we were part of my dad that they love us, right? But then again, what I wanna say with this is, um I I am the the discriminated and yet the discriminator at the same time, and I've been in both places. And it's interesting because you would think that you know you're either in one or the other, but I I do it unconsciously. Like I was taught by when I was very little what was good or bad or things that were right or wrong by the family system, and then it gets so like it, in in like inside like you get so you believe it you believe that idea and then you live upon or based on that idea and then yet you I, I guess i'm fortunate enough to be in a country where there's so much and there's so much variety of everything that that if you are willing to open your eyes a little more then you can learn from others but it takes time and it, it takes willingness but in terms of my practice is interesting because i'm working on a con. <laughs> And um, it's simply about not not being a female. In this case, I'm struggling with being a male. Like, like I can't go, I can't put myself in something else or someone else. And and I and that shows me in my practice maybe my bias. Like, why so hard for me to be like, okay, I'm a man, or or I'm Asian, or I am American, or I'm white, or. I can because I'm so holding on to who I think I am right now in terms of form. So I think just going back to, I read the articles and then, but I couldn't help to think about, okay, yes, the articles, they were great, <laughs> but my practice, I'm like, I'm struggling with <laughs> just, you know, that duality of female and male in this case, particular case. but. But that is discrimination because I I create ideas of what a, a male should be and a female should be and that separates me from that. So I think in terms of society, we have a hard time to do that, to have that empathy of you becoming that person, not putting yourself in that person's shoes. I don't think that works. I think become that person think or be, or try to feel like it. I think it's more intimate, like, oh man, I wouldn't like someone to do that to me, you know? Mm -hmm. But then I think that requires a lot of work. So my position with this is I'm, I am, I have so much hope for the individual in terms of, I think we all can wake up to it. And when I go to the Zendo or we practice together, I see each one of us that at least we're trying to awaken our consciousness, with that comes the embracing all. Because the same way I reject other races, it's the same way I reject myself, you know. But then at the same time, I look at the society and I'm very disappointed because like you said, I don't think I'm going to be able to see a real change. And I embrace people that speak up and, and fight for rights and do things, but something inside of me says this is not going to work. They're not willing to change because people then we forget the same way we forget to sit, the same way we forget where we come from, the roots of suffering, the same thing. And we reminded how many times you as our teacher had to repeat the same thing over and over and over (laughs) because we keep forgetting, you know. Imagine us as a society, this is things that embrace and happen and and that's great, but then we forget, and then we go back to being numb and and I mean again i'm I'm a little i don't really have a response, it's not an ending with this it's just where I am at and and I see how biased I am, but I'm grateful that I found this practice that is helping me through a simple coin or, or uh, you know or listening to my teacher or just sharing with the sangha and I think that's where it's the Sangha about, you know show us the variety of, of people. And when we sit, we're just people sitting. It's, it's basically the same. I don't see a difference when we're in a dozen. There's no difference. <laughs> we're all sitting in silence, which that shows us a lot. But anyways, I just wanted to share that. Thank, Thank you.
0: Thank you. And yes, so, so to be aware of our own biases. And you know what? To be aware of biases and not to be judgmental about the fact that there are biases within us. Right? Because if we judge that, then we're just doing more of the same. But it does. there's something that we all share in terms of practice, and it's the restlessness that we encounter. That restlessness is, is, is a key component, because if we learn to work with that and quell the restlessness, we can actually open up the heart and embrace and listen to everything and everybody. That restlessness, I mean, just look at simple Zazen, 30 minutes, 40 minutes of Zazen. Look how much restlessness we encounter. What do we do with that? We want to scratch. We want to move. We want to go somewhere else. And we may do that when we are by ourselves. Maybe not so much with the Sangha sitting together. But we have to acknowledge that. There is a great deal of restlessness within me and pain. What do I do with that? Am I judging myself for, for, for feeling this way, for thinking this way? Right? Am I able to embrace that? Otherwise, the heart stays constricted and we are not able to open up to ourselves or to others. So, as within, so without. Whatever we do with ourselves, we do with others. Thank you. Dina, good morning. Uh, and you, yeah. Good morning. Yes.
7: <laughs> Miho? Um, Miho. Is that, that right? I Mioho. think what Miho said was Mi- absolutely Mioho. perfect. Mioho. It, Mioho. Yeah. It's absolutely perfect. Um and you know, I found myself I you know saying, Well, can we connect if we are discriminatory and these other things? Um, and I I grew up listening to James Baldwin and Audrey Lorde. You guys, these guys were my um college professors. Um, so, you know, um, it's interesting to look at how I think about what I learned from them over, you know, in the, in the, in the, uh, late eighties, early nineties versus today. Um, but then yesterday as I'm sitting in my uh, apartment, I live you know, on a high floor and for the past almost eight weeks, my neighbors three blocks away have decided to park their SUV outside and sit in the street and have a party. And it's annoying. <laughs> because it's noisy. And I can't do what I want to do in my own apartment where I think I am entitled to be in all of these ideas about around my rights and my existence and my identity and these things. And um, so as I find myself calling the police to respond, knowing that they're not going to respond, you know, I'm thinking all of these... Nasty ideas, all these nasty thoughts, and you know, I thought to myself, I'm screwed,
6: <laughs>
7: because the same thing that we're fighting individually, collectively, the same things that um, as a younger person I protested and demonstrated, and you know, was so socially active around, are uh, um, were coming up in me yesterday. And, you know, a little bit at six o'clock this morning when I wake up to the same noise, you know, and I was like, I'm so screwed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, you know, to just kind of get back to it, it's like, well, maybe I just kind of sit still for a moment and just kind of let it go. And, you know, realize that I'm just really I'm angry because it's noisy and I'm interrupted and it doesn't have to be. Anything other than I just need them to be quiet. If I center around that, then the rest of it kind of falls away, and these other ideas that I had don't, you know, take root mm-hmm. and blossom into something else that's not good. So, Mioho, thank you, because that that was pretty pretty on point.
0: Thank you, thank you, Dina. Um.
8: Hi, so I'm Vincent. And I think what Dana just said brought up a good point in that like sometimes you have to take yourself out of your own ego or your own like identity or, or whatever it might be, like the story, I guess. A lot of times I've found that like all these issues within discrimination have to do with like it are all like within intersectionality, everything is, is the same. It's just how your own ego perceives it. So discrimination in and of itself is is the same. It doesn't matter what you're discriminating against, right, or what you are discriminated as. But um, it comes from who you think you are or who you – who you like, without listening to the other person, you immediately get offended because you, you made up all these stories or, or you have your own ego. It doesn't mean that you can't be offended because there are some things that are very offensive. But in that moment, I found, like, I was watching a video on a YouTuber uh, reacting, a, a black YouTuber reacting to um, – a white YouTuber um, apologizing for what she has done in the past. And I found myself getting offended um, (laughs) from what the the black YouTuber was saying because I was like, no, but I like this YouTuber. I like this YouTuber. She didn't do anything wrong. I'm like, wait, this is my ego telling me this person didn't do anything wrong, but she's apologizing. And And the black YouTuber wasn't saying, you know, I hate this person, but she was calling her out on things. And I was like, you know what, if that's true. I have to listen to both sides of the story. I have to listen to why she was offended and let my ego go away for a bit and listen and, and be mindful that sometimes my own story of who I am and, and what's offensive toward me isn't what I'm supposed to be listening to all the time. You know, It has to be within everyone else's opinions as well and what they're offended as and, and try to understand that. Even if it's not something I fully understand, something I have to listen to, to be aware of it, um, and to let go of my own ego, right? Mm-hmm.
9: Mm-hmm.
8: Um, so thank you for sharing that, it reminded me of,
9: of what I thought. I wanted to, since we have the mic open, um, I wanted to also thank Nyoho um, for what she said. Um, I think, you know, I, I relate a lot to that, uh, I see where we are coming from, um, I would say brother or sisters, countries in Uruguay and Argentina. And, uh, And I can relate to to that issue of of, uh, racial um, things, you know, being there, but not being called out in the same way as here, Um, but also all other kind of discriminations that uh, happen around the world that are not only related to race, they're more uh, religious discriminations, cultural discriminations, um, different origins discrimination. And there's a lot of, uh, I, I would say that the most, probably the most, widespread discrimination is um, social status and economic status discrimination. That's probably the more widespread everywhere, you know, even in places where racial uh, is not a big deal. I mean, like uh, in countries uh, in Africa that like I've seen, uh, or, you know, they have like every, they, the population is mainly the same color and still they discriminate each other a lot, you know, and, and um, so, so Discrimination has a lot of many faces, and I think, you know, we need to... Um, I think the, the key is what Miojo said on how do we... We are discriminated. I, I have been discriminated even though I'm white. I mean, like, I, I look like a person cannot be discriminated. However, because of this and that, I've been discriminated before. Not, not a big deal, but at the same time, I do notice my own discriminations against it, you know, and and, and um and they're all kind of part of our legacy as we're holding up fears. Um, you know, fear is the source of most of it. Um, the kind of the need of separation has to do with, okay, we fear that we actually prefer these, you know, and, and we try to kind of make a pack like dogs make a pack and they kind of attack the other pack. And, and, and that kind of sensation of making packs that we are kind of, we trust and packs that we don't trust, we kind of against them, uh, is what's driving it and it's mostly you know fear and um and of course we fear a lot of things you know we we inherit a lot of fears from our family because we you know like of course you know you, our parents when they're racing out they fear that something bad can happen to so they kind of warn us about this and that and and, and the warnings are okay there's bad people so identifying bad people sometimes has to do with all these traits that are generalities that don't apply, and, and, uh, and you know, it, it's the way that we're taught. So destroying all those things, um, I mean, for instance, one fear won't fear in Argentina, nobody ever in Argentina will trust the police. You know, the police is something that we fear all the time. So no, no matter, I mean, and it has nothing to do with your color or skin or whatever. It's like the police is kind of stopping you, that's bad. No matter what you did, you may have a broken light. it turns into a problem where you're in jail or you get like to pay something because, I mean, I like, can you know. So, so that is kind of a discrimination that we have because, I mean, of course, not all policemen has that, but, you know, that is what we think happens. Um, so how do we destroy? How do we destroy is not the right word. How do we let go or are aware of those things so they don't let them act? when we show up into things is, is kind of the key ingredient. And I think that, that is what we need to work with mm-hmm. um, a lot more. I mean, like, what are we discriminating against? What are we fearing? What are we, and, and are we aware of that? Um, not to probably solve it right away, um, but to become more aware and more aware as we go and letting go of that need to act due to the fear. Mm-hmm. That is kind of what, um, what I saw, I mean, what, what I heard from Yoho, and, uh, and I wanted to kind of just kind of repeat back in my own version. Um, so thank you.
0: Thank you. So what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of, right? But, uh, you know, a radical acceptance has to include not being accepted or being rejected. And that, that is very important because, you know, if, if I am radically if I say I'm going to practice radical acceptance, but I'm going to exclude those who reject me, what am I saying and what am I doing? Right? So, to accept means to accept all of it. Why? Because it is that way. It's not, and it's not personal, it just is that way, period. To begin from there, then there is some good work to be done or we can do some really great work there. But it has to begin from radically accepting even those who are overtly rejecting me or rejecting a group of people. How do, and what does it mean to accept them? Does it mean that I agree with this kind of action? Or does it mean that I have to accept that before I can do anything to change that? So, yeah, what are we afraid of? Why are we afraid of what's different, of what we do not understand? or doesn't look like us.
2: Go ahead. Okay. Hi, everyone. It's me again. Um, whenever I uh, talk to anyone about, or any group, about um, racism and prejudice and discrimination, um, I get all kinds of feelings of uh, fear and guilt and sadness and pain. and and anger, actually, uh, my own anger. Um, actually, just several things, you know. I've had experiences with my family growing up. Uh, they were very uh, prejudiced against pretty much everybody, but especially African-Americans. Um, anything with Anybody with a different color of skin was bad. Um, I can't ever remember agreeing with them or feeling that way but you know when we're very young we often just go with it so I can't say I've never been prejudiced I think I I have been in the past Um, but you know experience of watching other people's pain when you feel a certain way about them I remember I was uh, maybe 11 years old and um, I was in the car waiting and uh, there was an African American who approached the car and as my mother had trained me to do, I, don't judge me, (laughs) I locked the door. Um, This is what I was taught to do and the feeling of actually locking the door on another human being just because of the color of their skin was so uh penetrating to me and you know i could see that he heard the door lock and he looked at me with um a great deal of pain and um, i'm not saying i became enlightened at that point but i just felt this sense of deep deep pain, like, you don't like me, you reject me. You don't accept me because of my skin. Um, And I just cried, actually, in the car after that. And I never did that again, actually. I can honestly say that. Um, So just listening to everybody, and I've had my own experience, in spite of being white um, skinned, um, I've had my own experience of Prejudice, um, you know, and I, I, I'm a special ed. For those of you who don't know, I'm a special education teacher in Newark, New Jersey. Um, most of the people in uh, that I work with are uh, minority groups, but they're the majority in Newark. Um, and coming in as a as a white teacher, um, I've experienced a lot of different. Aspects of prejudice, where they call you names, you know, they'll make fun of you, or you can't tell me what to do because your people don't like my people, and, and it becomes about race at that point. Um, I've had to actually accept that. They feel that way, and let it go. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Um, I'm not saying that I understand how a minority would feel but um, I've had some experience with that and it hurts badly. And just in terms of fear, I think fear comes from a deep pain um, of separation. We look different from other people, we act differently than other people. Working with kids with autism, it means they act differently, they're a little quirky. Um, Honestly, it's just aspects of ourselves that we don't, do that often. It's just exaggerated. But, you know, I, I, I've seen a lot of prejudice against them as well. So um, just feeling that and then feeling guilt for being white, too. Um, feeling guilty, well, why was I born with white skin? <laughs> um, because I feel like there's a lot of blame But I know where that comes from. I think I know where that comes from. I think I know it comes from fear and pain. But I can't, I I was reading the article and in the article it said, one of the articles, I think the Harvard article, it said, uh, blind to my whiteness. And I have to say that I do feel many times I have been blind to my whiteness because I don't even look at myself in the mirror and say I'm white. It's just for granted. If only we could look at everybody and say they're human. I was reading another, just one more thing. I was reading another article about a teacher who always taught this lesson about white-eyed, I mean blue-eyed kids and brown-eyed kids. And she would always, you know, switch them up. And they're a group over here. The blue-eyed kids get all these privileges and acceptance and everything. And the brown-eyed kids get nothing. And then she would switch it up during the week. And um, she had said in that article uh, that if you stand up, I, she, she was really talking to teachers, but I think everybody, where she said, um, if you tell a group of kids or a group of anybody that you don't see the largest part of their body, the largest organ of their body, you don't see them. I don't see your blackness. I don't see your whiteness. I don't see your brownness. Then you're, you're. If you say that, then you're not. Then you're saying that you don't see them, you don't see the color of their skin. What you should really be saying is that you see them as one race of humans. And I thought that was profound. Um, that really struck me. I cried at that point. You know, it was cry. It was, it's, it's. There's a lot of pain associated with it. I think people should see each other as unified, but I can't ignore the difference between us. So, just wanted to say thank you, everyone, for listening.
0: Thank you. So I see uh, Ari raised a hand. Hey, everybody! Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Good morning, Ari.
10: Good morning. Uh, you were asking, "What what are we afraid of?" And um, I was thinking back to a time in my early twenties, and in in my early twenties, I was very um, uh, expressive, more with my masculine energy, um, and. I, I was actively participating in personal growth and stuff. And um, I got invited to uh, a workshop called Reawakening the Goddess. And uh, I chuckled I to stay. Uh, and I had some resistance. And I basically was sort of making fun of it the whole time. You know, uh, dancing with scarves and heck. It, and the nay-nay and I just, you know, was making fun of it Um, because I felt really, really uncomfortable Um, at that point in my life, uh, you know, embracing the feminine. Not that I think the feminine has anything to do with dresses or scarves, uh, it doesn't from my viewpoint, Um, but, but I, I was afraid of it. I was afraid of the vulnerability of the the feminine, of, of receiving. Um, and, um, at the end of that workshop, the, the men, um, had a a similar workshop that same weekend. And then everybody came together and the women sat inside of a, a circle that the men had made. And, uh, we all had. Well, I didn't really participate. I just listened um, to this really beautiful conversation about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and what it means to interact. and um, And we're out. uh, We were at a place called the Cliff House um, uh, in uh, the West Campus out at UCSD, and um, it's uh, literally on the cliff uh, of the ocean and during that conversation uh, you know i i noticed that i was getting more and more uncomfortable and then all of a sudden i just had this first step of awareness which was that i am neither this or that i'm neither the masculine or the feminine and i'm both all at once and it was the most terrifying isolating uh, awareness that I, that I had in my life up until that point, I just felt this complete void really. Um, And my, my, my impulse literally my, then my first thought after that awareness uh, was to jump off the cliff. It was, it was that scary for me, you know, to, to, be in that void of, um, I don't, I don't know if it, it, in a way it was, it was a, it was a death really. That's the best way that I could describe it. And, um, you know, when we let go of that, I mean, at least for me, that was my first impulse. You know, today, uh, it's very different. Um, but that initial time it was terrifying. And today, uh, you know, I, I love who I am. And it's been my, uh, you know, um, androgyny has been one consistent aspect of my life, my entire life. People used to tell my mom, uh, you know, we'd be in the grocery store and they'd say, oh, your son's so beautiful. And my my wonderful, crazy Aquarian mother, she would just say, thank you. And so I value that today. And it, and, um, but, but it's been a road getting there, you know, and, and I I also, uh, I want to share this, um, t- just two quick things. But the first one is, from my perspective, um, I believe we can see it in our lifetime. Uh, I, I believe we can, um, objectively just, you know, um, from my own personal experience of transforming and making myself as available to that, um, as I possibly can. I'm, I'm devoted to it. You know, I, I'm pretty fearless about it at this point. Um, but it's taken, you know, 30 years of practice and, um, you know, I remember speaking at a rally in college and, um, a, a guy named Lyndon LaRouche. This was dur- during, um, the AIDS epi- epidemic and this guy, Lyndon LaRouche, he wanted to quarantine just gay people. Um, you know, basically put them in con- concentration camps. And so, um, you know we were battling we, we were battling for we we were fighting then right we were fighting not just you know against this guy that wanted to do this lunatic thing um but and and marriage wasn't even on the table yet i mean one of the early battles was the right to to be in the military right which seemed to sort to me. the right to take up arms and go kill people um but I look at where we've come and what I have personally experienced, I've experienced, um, I've, uh, experienced violence. Uh, I've been punched and kicked and spit on and had things thrown at me and fired from a job for being queer. And that doesn't happen to the extent that it does now. I had to change schools my freshman year. And I look at, I look at these kids today uh, you know that are that are able to so freely express themselves, um, and, and it would it was unheard of. I mean, I was ostracized um, in high school, so uh, I have I have absolute faith. I just trust. I I trust the flow of our collective awakening. It's one person. Can and awaken that means we all can't. So I, I just trust that. Mm. That doesn't mean I don't stress. I've been stressing a lot lately about, um, but I trust it. And, um, yeah, having said that, it doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have our, our work that we get to do this work that we do together. You know, every moment that we're mindful sends this ripple and it's beautiful and it's powerful. And it's an honor to be a part of that. And then I'll just share this one other piece. So in, um, I played a Olympic development league and at one point in my life, and one of my best friends uh, from high school, she also played. And we were um, traveling, and we, we were, I don't even remember where we were, but um, someone called her the N word. And I, I remember all at once just being like, You can't call my friend that. And then all at once realized, she was black i ne- it, I never noticed for years it didn't even occur to me I-, I noticed she had brown skin i thought her skin was beautiful um but i i'm not sure that that didn't mean that because i didn't see that that i didn't know her or see her because i we mean we're friends to this day so that that's um I'm going to chew on that one, Yogan. I'm going to chew on
0: that one for a bit. That's my share. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So you you mentioned something that uh, is very important, right? Trust, um, no matter what, to trust our capacity for wisdom, but to trust while acknowledging and recognizing uh, karma and our propensity to perpetuate it. Right or, or harmful propensities, right? So we have to trust while keeping our eyes open and acknowledging what's happening and acknowledging the judgmental mind that is reacting to that, so our own reactivities to that. But absolutely, above all, trust. Whether we see the changes we want to create in our lifetime or not is really irrelevant. It's irrelevant to the trust, and it's irrelevant to what we are doing today. It doesn't matter. We're not doing it to achieve something within a certain amount of time. Right? That's not the the point. I mean, we're doing it because what else will the bird do other than go back and forth from the lake to the forest? What else would the bird do? That's what the bird does. There's no question. The bird does not carry back and forth the notion of I got to be kind to other birds. That will be a burden. Or or the notion of I'm going to keep doing it a thousand times and then by, the, by that time the forest fire will be extinguished. That too will be a burden. We have to do what we have to do because we understand that's the only thing we, we, we can do. And that's why the connection between our daily Zazen and our lives have to be extinguished or, dimin- right, or the line sorry, between the two has, has to be completely gone. Of course we are doing this. What else are we going to do? But yeah, thank you. Trust, the great trust. Yes. Who's next? Uh, how about uh, Chodo, since he hasn't said anything, and I'd love to hear his voice.
6: Michelle was raising their hand. Oh, Michelle. Okay. I... So, uh,
0: okay. So Michelle then Chodo. How's that? Okay, Michelle Chodo, go ahead.
11: Hello, everyone.
0: Morning. Um, since this
11: conversation was um uh, suggested or the the work towards it started moving, I've been thinking a lot about fear and how it has been a motivator. Um. In, in many different ways, but also thinking about how fear attached to the idea of scarcity has also, I think, driven a lot of um, our experiences in this country. As we're all practitioners, you know, well, not all of us are here in the United States, but like coming from a Western perspective, um, I think it is important to think about how some of our, liberation movements have grown from separateness, have grown from the idea of difference um, for survival first, then also thinking about the creation of race. Race doesn't actually exist, but it has existed in practice long enough that has now become part of people's identity. So to say that you can't see a person's skin color for some people that's okay but for others their physical identity their gender their their acceptance of their true gender their um identity of of racial classification really do describe the kind of interactions they have with the outside world and while We talk about accepting where we are right now, like what the dynamics of this country are. I think we also need to understand the steps that got us here to this current moment. If we are actually going to do the radical work of acceptance, we do need to understand that fear has been used to separate people so that they wouldn't feel that they were at the bottom. Race had to be created in order to create this idea of scarcity so that if I don't, if my family doesn't, if my group does not, then we are going to end up at the bottom just like this group. And these things are perpetuated. How this comes into our practice, I definitely believe that like our learning, our shared cognitive frameworks, our shared historical understanding of where we are right now is a grounding It doesn't mean that it has to be the rule as to how things move forward, but it's actually the understanding of why certain policies are in place right now. There there were laws put in place to legally discriminate against groups. There are still laws in place that are being used to discriminate against for housing. So we just found out recently in Philadelphia that um, there are policies in place where while Black people, and I say Black because it's inclusive of the entire diaspora, right? Um, While Black people are the least to be approved for certain types of housing in certain neighborhoods, the city is discriminating not against Latinos, but Mexicans, right? So we do actually have these policies in place that are separating us from each other, that are disenfranchising us from each other. And before we can get into the work of like saying that we believe all people are equal, we actually have to look at the policies in place that that truly, in, like truly, keep us separated. Once we're able to see those things, I think then we can actually start doing the phenomenal work, right, of of working towards being connected. Mm. So those are the things that I've been thinking about, and I appreciate the conversation that's been happening today, but I feel until we actually understand the, the legal, the social um, things that have been put in place to keep us separated, then we can actually talk about the ways and work towards the ways of, of building those bridges, of removing um, those separations, of actually moving towards equality. Mm-hmm. So those are the thoughts, and thank you, Elle, for, um,
0: Elevating. Yes, thank you for paying attention. <laughs> thank you. So Chodo, go ahead.
12: So yeah, uh, first of all, I want to thank you, everybody, to uh, for this discussion and um, your openness. It's really amazing to me. And um, so something was said about in the beginning about wearing masks in the public and this being maybe a specific to to the american public or maybe to competitiveness um here in germany we've also had demonstration ensuing entailing the the death of george floyd and um, somebody i don't know if it was from within the ecosystem of our politicians here i don't know exactly where it came from but somebody suggested, hey, let's conduct a study on racial profiling with the German police. And um, just two days ago, the German secretary of the interior, which is maybe comparable to Ministry of Homeland Security in the US, um, he said, no, we're not going to do that because we don't need it. There is no such thing. And by the way, it would be forbidden anyway. So it can't be anyway. So, and This is, for me, it's the hate of stupidity, and it's so, I'm feeling really helpless about it. And um, I'd wished so much that we as a society, that we had been further than that already. And um, yeah, I was just now wondering what, what happens next when I sit in a train, as it sometimes happens in a commuter train. And usually the people that get checked up by the police, they are colored. And um, it's, they never control, uh, I mean, the police hardly ever checks on white people here. And it's so obvious. And um, I was wondering maybe next time I just pull out my ID and sit next to the people who get checked up and ask the police if they want to check me up as well, because I might be dangerous as well. I mean, I've got curls, you know, I've got blue eyes, but curls. So maybe that's also, Indication mm-hmm. and um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, I'm feel, I'm really feeling at a loss there. And um, I, I wish I um I had the optimism right now that um, as Ari said before, that um, to trust in the flow as a society or humankind, maybe that this will all uh, turn out for the better eventually. Um, yeah, I don't know what more to say, that's where I'm at right now
2: thank
0: you thank, thank you. you so so examples like that right does it change our commitment to practice right so and if it does then we are saying something if it doesn't we are also saying something right so we do have to examine you know seeing reality as it is seeing what we create and also seeing what we would love to see understanding that that's not what we think makes sense but It's what's happening, so how do we embrace that as well? How do we allow for that, and what does it mean to allow for that, right? So yeah, those are great great questions, Uh, we're not here to answer, we're actually here to raise questions and examine how we react to those questions and where do we go with them. So thank you, so we have a few more minutes, Uh, Dina wanted to say something.
7: Actually, I want to ask a question um, because I I also agree with... i um, sorry, the last gentleman who spoke, what's your name, please? Jodo. Goldo?
0: Jodo? Jodo. Jodo.
7: Jodo. Okay, Jodo. Nice to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you, too. <laughs> um, with Between Jodo, Michelle, and Ariel, Ari, as I'm thinking, um, you know, it's like, so Ari, you said... You know, when I heard them call her the N-word, you know, I realized I didn't see her as that. And so my question is, is it that you didn't see her skin color or that the language that was used at her changed her identity in that moment? Did it cause you to to see her as something other than what you had seen? her? Because, you know, words are powerful. And the reason that people use these kinds of um, words is to deteriorate. Um, The humanity of this other person that they're targeting with this nasty conversation. Um, Jodo, you know, I I, I've been watching, you know, the coverage is off and on um, internationally. And I've been shaking my head because I've had the privilege to travel a bit. And as as a black person, I've caught some stuff. As a woman, I catch stuff. But as a black American woman, and being a single black American woman, it's like, I'm going back to the Bronx. I feel better off over there at the moment. Or, you know, some you just want to run, but there's nowhere to get away from this. So, you know, the amount of faith that's necessary, I don't think I have it. But where it relates to my practice, I kind of try to release it. Um, for Michelle, the question becomes, I'm not sure that we can, and it really is a question, I'm not sure that we can change policy and procedure um, without looking at our value systems. And our value systems are informed by our language and our socialization. So Yogan speaks about how she was raised and um, how it hurt her. You know, um, I, I think at some point when you see somebody else as a human being, you see some commonality, that connection like Wow, that's pain. That makes us look at our value system and opens us up to the questions that allow us to be different, I think. You know, um, I don't agree that uh, discrimination and prejudice and these things are results of fear. Um, um, because if it was just fear, we could address that. You know, the same way people address being afraid of water, you learn to swim. There, there are things that we do. I think that there are some very um, hateful people. And they, they have propagated it and they stoke it and they need it because it gives them what they want and what they want is to dehumanize people. So my question brings back, how do I practice as an individual where I'm not dehumanizing myself, where I'm not dehumanizing somebody else, realizing that I have absolutely no faith in any of this whatsoever?
0: So that's the question. That's the question. How do we develop that uh, determination and trust that is beyond beyond even what we think? I think this and that. How do I develop trust that is actually beyond what I think but includes what I think? Yeah. It's a, it's a greater sense of trust. Uh, we do have to wrap it up. You want to say uh, one thing before we wrap it up? I
2: I think the reason why people dehumanize others is because there's some deep fear in them. Um, And with respect, you know, I I understand what you're saying. I I think it's easy to say that people are just, um, they're just some hateful people who want to be superior to others. Um, and I think there are. I'm not disagreeing with you on that point. There are people who are just complete sociopaths who just want to see other people suffer because of their race or because of their religion or whatever. But I I feel that dehumanizing somebody actually makes us, allows us to avoid um, the pain within us. So we can't. We don't want to look at that. We don't want to look at how we're different. We don't want to look at how much we're hurting. So because of that, we yeah. dehumanize another person. It's you. It must be you. So no, not me, you know? Yeah. 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 So certain, certain people are really completely lacking empathy. And I totally understand that. Um, and I agree with that, but uh, my experience of experiencing my family dehumanizing people because of their color or their race or their culture um, was because I knew that they didn't want to look at themselves. Honestly, that's just it.
0: So, so we are wrapping it up but this is uh, to be continued, definitely to be continued and uh, we will be in touch uh, on how, in regards to how it will be continued. Uh, We will set up more time, but also I would like to open up uh, email communication about this because a lot of really great points were brought up today and uh, we have to uh, keep going in that direction. Uh, Just the one thing before we we end, the one thing I want to say is that we have to also examine, in, in terms of a sangha, the role of a sangha, we have to examine how we listen to each other. And I am looking, not judging, just looking, at, at everybody, at all of us, to see how open are we to actually listen and how quickly we get distracted. How quickly we get distracted and to stay with listening, with paying attention, with bearing witness. This is a practice by itself. Yeah. To teach ourselves to listen no matter what we hear. It may strike a cold, oh yeah, that's a great idea, or that's a terrible idea, whatever the judgmental mind is saying. It doesn't matter. Because if we really want to practice acceptance, we have to practice ourselves. It's very important, right? So if the mind is restless and the body follows the mind, we are practicing something. And if the mind is restless and the body is not, we teach ourselves to not follow that restlessness, we also teach ourselves something. Very important what we do as practitioners within a Sangha, that we take the the opportunity and we do something with it. So let's look at that as well. Okay, don't hang up. We're going to finish with the four vows, so stay on the call, please.